This podcast was produced on Ghana Yurta. We respect First Nations people around Australia and acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, where the Festival Centre is located. We honour their spiritual relationship with their country and we do so in the spirit of reconciliation. People talk about multiculturalism and how wonderful it is because we get to eat a lot of different kinds of food. But yeah. I, I wanted to dig a bit deeper than just, you know, the cuisine. I wanted to dig into people's history and their motivations mm. to find the things that make us different, but ultimately what makes us the same, our common sense of humanity. Hey, Libby O'Donovan here. Welcome to the First 50 podcast a 50th anniversary celebration of the Adelaide Festival Centre, the home of performing arts in South Australia. This magical venue, which I've had the delight of performing in over the last 25 years, has housed some historical moments and many of my fellow incredible artists. Every spring, the banks of the Karawira Parry, the River Torrens, come alive with the sounds, smells and excitement of the lucky dumpling market. Of course, that means there are dumplings and wontons and gyoza, all sizzling in hot pans. Patrons slurp down brightly coloured bubble teas, children lick ube flavoured ice cream off their fingers and the air is filled with a vibrant music that gets the crowd dancing. Since 2007, hundreds of thousands of festival goers have come to the AusAsia Festival to indulge in the theatre. The song, the literature, music, dance, culture and ideas from all across Asia. From Japan to Afghanistan to Singapore to Mongolia, South Korea to Nepal and everywhere in between. It takes someone of immense vision and passion to pull a festival like this together, one that reflects the diversity of Asian cultures and Australian society. Joining me today is a brilliant woman who has made it her mission to celebrate the incredible artistic ideas that flow between Asia and Australia. By bringing the voices of Asian Australians to our radios, TVs, cinemas and stages, today's guest has created a platform where many famous personalities and performers reach new audiences and captivate new minds. Artistic director, producer, dramaturg, traditional broadcast host, live performance artist, digital media creator, author, actor and someone who was once described as the fairy godmother of Asian-Australian performance. I'm joined today by Annette Shun-War. She started her career by bringing a love for new contemporary music to us through radio and TV. And now Annette is the first Asian female director of the Oz Asia Festival at the Adelaide Festival Centre. You're about to hear firsthand the story of how a Chinese-Australian girl raised on a chicken farm in Queensland came to bring the best of Asian-Australian stories to Adelaide and the mainstream. Please welcome Annette Shunwa. Thank you, Libby. Yeah, uh, the fairy godmother is the one that's continued on, actually, so pretty pleased about that. <laughs> 
I know that's a great that's a great way to be introduced, and I think it sort of lends itself to the importance of the work that you've done in Australia as an artist, but also as a creator and a performer yourself. There really has been this sense of you're a pioneer. That's nice. Yeah, thank you. Pioneer and traditional broadcaster. I don't think I've ever been called that before. <laughs> but, yeah, the fairy godmother thing is about the community of Asian Australian artists and particularly artists in the performing arts uh, that I've worked with and nurtured and uh, befriended over the years and created a very strong and vibrant and very talented community and they, a number of them call me Fairy Godmother. Do they? That's so great. <laughs> I mean, there must be a sense of for as many years as you've been working as a professional artist and creator that people have taken notice of what you've done. And I guess you just live it. But for other people watching you, you're forging a path for others to follow and it is an honour and uh, for people to be paying homage and I think only right. Well, you know, about 10 years ago, if you looked at main stages, major theatre companies, major festivals, there was very little, if any, Asian Australian performance. And I think that that's a serious problem because, you know, the arts in this country is meant to reflect who we are. But more than that, it's meant to inject into our thinking about ourselves who we are. And the fact that large swathes of our population, important parts of our population, were absent from our stages and our screens says something about us that really needs to be thought about and something needs to be done so that people, not only that people feel included, but because our story is such a wide and diverse and vibrant story and we're only telling half of it. Yes. So my job was to basically break down the barriers because the people were there, the artists were there, the talent and the stories were there. They were just being stopped at the gate. My job was just to create that path so they could come through. Yeah, absolutely. And throughout your career that has definitely happened. I mean, that's that's why you're being called the fairy godmother <laughs> of Asian Australian performance. I'd love to now take you right back to when you were born in Cairns in Queensland, beautiful place. Tell us about what it was like growing up throughout your childhood. Well, yeah, I was born in Cairns, had two older brothers. Um, unfortunately, my mother died mm. giving birth to me. So my father uh, decided to bring the whole family to Brisbane where he had a brother and uh, a couple of brothers actually. So there'd be a little bit more of a support system. So I don't really remember much of Cairns. Yes. So I grew up, grew up pretty much in Brisbane. We're talking 1960s Brisbane. Yeah. Very quiet place. Learned to be very quiet and keep your head down. Pretty much the only Chinese kid at school. My brothers were much older than me, so we, we weren't in the same schools most of the time. So the only Chinese family in town. And so you learned to fit in, I guess. Yeah. And the whole thing was about, in those days, the whole thing was about assimilation, mm. not about celebrating cultural diversity but being a good new Australian, Yes, which is kind of ironic because I am Australian. I was born here. My dad was born here. His mother was born here. Yeah. You know, I'm fourth generation Australian-born. The family goes back to 1878 Darwin. It's a long history. Yeah. But here we were trying to assimilate. So I didn't mind. I, you know, when you're a kid, you're adaptable. I tried to fit in. I was crap at sport. But other than that, <laughs> growing up was fun. 
but it was very limited, had yes. a very sheltered life. Dad was very protective of all of us. So my only escape as a kid was television and music. Yes. I've read actually that you were sort of brought into the arts through your love of music and that that was what drove you because you loved to be introduced to and introduce others to new forms of music and contemporary music. Was that like an escape for you when you were a kid, music, being able to sort of dip into that that part of life? Yeah, absolutely, because, you know, we grew, I grew up on a chook farm. Yes, I want to know about that. <laughs> on the outskirts of Brisbane. It wasn't even Brisbane. It was like the Shire that's just north of Brisbane, right? So it was semi-rural. Yeah. It isn't anymore. It was called the Pine Rivers District Shire and it was a family business. So there wasn't a lot of time for anything other than school. And growing up, you'd have to take the bus to get to school. Yeah. There's one free bus and all the local kids got on it, you know, kids from the watermelon farm and, you know, all of us were farm kids or whatever. Very different kind of thing. And it also meant that actually going out was very difficult because mm. we couldn't get anywhere unless mum or dad took us somewhere. So it, that was another thing that kept me feeling quite isolated. So the music was the thing. So I used to love listening to the radio. When I was seven, I, I had an illness and was stuck in bed for three months and I used to write the lyrics down oh, of, yeah. of all the pop songs, you know. My brothers had come home from school and just cacked themselves because I misunderstood most of the lyrics and didn't understand. Yeah. I was only seven. But Later on, my brothers started getting into buying their own records. They were really into particularly British rock music in the late 60s, early 70s. And so I was really influenced by mm -hmm. their music choices. You know, Janis Joplin and yeah. Jimi Hendrix and Cream were like my favourites growing up. So that suddenly made me a little bit cooler than yes. my fellow kids at high school. But yeah, that's the thing that really opened up my imagination and really wanted to be in that world. Yeah. And I wanted to be a rock star for a while yes. and then my brother bought me a piano and I realised I was really crap at playing a piano and I was really shy and hated performing anyway in front yeah. of anybody. So, you know, that eventually went away. But it was an area, rock music was a, an area that really excited me. And when I went into radio and then eventually television, it was in the area of, of pop music, rock music, contemporary yeah. music and always out of the mainstream because that's where I discovered that something was different and exciting. So I wanted to give other people the chance to hear something beyond what was being churned out all the time anyway. For most of us, our first love of the arts begins with music. Annette's experience was no different. It was music that connected her to her peers and the world beyond the Pine River District as a child. And it was music that continued to play a significant part in her career. Hi, welcome to the show. Tonight sees the first of ten colour series from the fabulous 70s. And with us once again, Glenn A. Baker. Hello, Annette. It's great to be here. In excess with Dancing on the Jetty, JJJ, Boxing Day Morning, and a very, very belated Merry Christmas, Michael Hutchins. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for coming in. How are you feeling this morning? Oh, the same as I usually feel. <laughs> Hi, welcome to The Noise. As you know, New Order are currently touring around the country. Well, we're coming up to the end of the 80s. What do you think music's been like generally in the 80s? 
I'm pretty pathetic. <laughs> the Ramones on stage was certainly something. They were fast, furious and, to my mind, very funny. Lovely stuff from uh, the go-betweens, Bachelor Kisses from their Spring Hill Fair LP. I'm keen to learn more about how Annette's voice grew and changed as she charted her course through the Australian media landscape. I mean, the arts is exactly that, taking yourself out of your reality and giving you a sense of a different reality, a new reality and endless possibilities. So when you first kind of got interested in the art scene, you were on radio first, that's right, isn't it? You were Yeah, I stumbled into radio, then ended up in television. So the first part of my career was was in the media. So between radio and TV, you know, I worked on a current affairs show, stuff like that. I only really got into arts radio, I guess, when I was working at Triple J. So really I'd say joining Triple J in 1982, I was there for four years, was the first chance to really explore all those possibilities through music. Mm. But also the other people working there, there were fantastic documentary makers and journalists and just thinkers. So introduced to all these alternative ideas and yeah, all sorts of incredible things that I never knew existed. So those four years were quite formative for me in opening up and broadening my world. And I guess it's from there that I really felt I had a sense of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to communicate in my career. Yeah. And what was that? Where did that lead you? Well, exploring the unusual music or yeah. the non-mainstream music, let's say, that was the thing that I carried all the way through. So when I got into television, I had a show called The Noise. So yeah. For me, it was a little bit like the television version of Triple J, which at that point wasn't national. So it was a chance to get some of that music across to a wider audience. And also around that time, we're talking mid-80s, the so-called popularity of so-called world music was really starting to blossom mm. thanks to people like Peter Gabriel and Paul Simon, you know, that their stuff was all starting to happen. So there was all this wonderful music coming from other parts of the world, not just the subcultures of, of the Western world. And so it really opened things up. And then in addition to the noise, after a couple of years, I also started producing a show called Eat Carpet. That's and right. Eat Carpet was the same philosophy, but it was applied to film, experimental film, short film and the arts. So there would be wonderful programs from uh, overseas, you know, from Canada or Germany or whatever that explored so-called fringe arts, just the more experimental, wacky kinds of things. So no one else was showing this kind of stuff no. on television That's at the right. time. You know, this was way before any kind of streaming and internet, anything like that. And we were the go-to place if you wanted to see something that just rocked your world a little bit because it was so different to what you're used to. And I guess there is where the representation that's so important to represent, as you've talked about, all of Australia needs to be represented in the arts, but particularly, you know, in the public arts so that many people are seeing, you know, as broadly as possible we can actually see a representation of what Australia really is and how, how the voices are all being heard. Television and radio are a great medium for that. How did you 
cope with being the main host of The Noise, as you said, and Eat Carpet you were hosting and then there was, you know, host on Triple J. You said before that you were a shy kid. How did you sort of find yourself stepping into that limelight? There was no deliberate plan. In fact, there's no deliberate plan in my entire career. You know, Libby, I've never trained for anything that I've done. I was doing social work at university when I stepped out and, you know, ended up in this world. So it was almost accidental. But radio, because it was something I I loved, Mm -hmm. I loved being in that world mostly because of the music. It just happened and I just took the opportunity. And it also got me away from that very closed atmosphere at home, got me out of Brisbane, got me to Sydney, got me as a young and independent adult at last to try and broaden that very sheltered world that I had lived in right up until the age of 20. And then going to SBS was an eye-opener because suddenly I could feel comfortable about being Chinese-Australian. And that was a big switch because Growing up, you had to, well, not to hide it. It's hard to hide it when you look like this, right? Yeah. But just there was kind of a denial Mm. of my culture. And my parents were very traditional and old-fashioned and stuck in their ways. And that was so uncool. So I just sort of rejected everything that they tried to teach me about their culture, about their values. It was so conservative. It was the last thing I wanted to embrace. But As I got into my mid-20s, as I was at SBS, I started to embrace it and started to realise you can't leave that behind. Yeah. It's a part of who you are. Even though, you know, I operate in contemporary Australian society and I love it, it is who you are as well. And you can be both. You can be lots of things. Human beings can be a lot of things. Yes. And uh, I was learning to embrace that. Annette's early career is so recognisable. It defined a generation of music loving in this country and showed so many Australian kids that there were people in this country succeeding, all while owning their heritage. With the rapid exposure that came from her career on the airwaves and screens of Australia, I want to know how Annette took her newfound self-confidence and applied it to the arts. And at what stage did she realise she could start lifting others up along with her, like the fairy godmother she is now known to be? Once you're in Sydney and so you're 20 and you've moved to Sydney and you're living there and then your world is opening up, Did you find that you were able to be part of several different communities? As you said, human beings can be lots of different things. So you're part of the arts world, radio, then you move into television. And how did that whole thing start to expand your artistic voice and your world to then being a part of the companies that you started to be a part of? I guess those first years it was more of being a broadcaster. So I saw my role as a facilitator – as I say, introducing an audience to ideas and things they hadn't experienced before and then trying to support the artists I admired because I I felt like I didn't have any talent and so I could support people who did. Mm. So that was for a number of years what I did but then I started to realise that I could write 
and I had a voice and I quite enjoyed it. It was another side of me that I hadn't explored before. Mm. And then I was asked by a publisher if there was a book I would like to write, you know. Wow. And there were probably lots of budding writers out there now who really hate me hearing that (laughs) because it is so hard even to get an appointment with a publisher. And I hadn't really thought about it. But it was around the time of the late 90s, a time when Pauline Hanson first appeared Mm. and I was hearing so much poison on the radio. And I was in a cab one day and there was this story about how people were being abused in the schoolyard, Asian kids, you know. And I went, oh, no, this is, this is really terrible. And the taxi driver said, look, don't worry about it. He said, you know, this just happens. You know, my family, we're Italian and, and we used to be called wogs and everything, but now everybody accepts us. The reason you're getting this abuse is because you're the latest arrivals. People will get over it. And I said, what? Yeah. My family's been here since 1878. We are not the latest arrivals. Mm. And I don't think that people are getting over it and it's just not right that people have to go through this. Yeah. So that fired me up. Yeah. And I wrote the book with my partner. We wrote this book that was about how the Chinese integrated into Australian society through their connections with food and it allowed us to go right back to the early days, even pre-gold rush, market farmers, all the way through to celebrity chefs and everything in between. Yeah. And, And it was great fun. It was a great project to do. One of my friends, Jennifer Wong, said, it's the world's first food blog. You know, this is before blogging. So that's how I became a writer as well and started to pursue that as well. Yeah, that's right. Honestly, it's it's everything. It's every – you've touched on every single part of the arts industry, acting, hosting, writing and directing and, of course, being an artistic director – of the Asia Festival and here we are sitting in the banquet room at the Adelaide Festival Centre overlooking the River Torrens out there and Elder Park, Park, which of course then leads on to Pinky Flat and all of the surrounds here. And this is this is the hub of where so much of the Asia Festival comes alive and it is such an incredible festival. I do wonder, you know, I was researching about the Asia Festival and I'm thinking it's a really incredible idea and a very it feels ambitious to say Oz Asia Festival which encompasses over 50 countries in one festival how do you how do you shape it how, what's your vision for it how do you say right we're going to try and encapsulate what it means for an Oz Asia Festival to be here obviously Australia Asia which is well over 50 countries, all in the one festival over only a number of days. <laughs> well, it does go for three weeks um, yeah, and true. the number of countries varies true. from year to year. So Asia Festival started in 2007. So I'm only a baby in that I, I only joined the festival in 2020, that fateful year, 2020. Yes, that's right. But I have been involved previously with the previous two artistic directors by bringing my own shows here. Yeah. I had a, a theatre company in, in Sydney called Performance 4A, now called Contemporary Asian Australian Performance. So we created a few shows that were invited to the festival. And the very first one was was actually right here in this room, in the banquet room. It was a show called Stories Then and Now, yeah. uh, which I co-directed with the fabulous celebrated photographer and theatre maker William Young, our six storytellers, 
told the stories of a an interesting forebear in their family and then their own stories together with photographs. Mm. And this is Sir William's practice, which he's taken all around the world. And William and I have probably made about six shows together in that format. But the first one was right here. And then I did other stuff for Ausasia. I hosted a few Moon Lantern parades as they were then. But I didn't think that I would finally be here as its artistic director, but so pleased when Douglas Gautier, whose baby the Ausasia Festival is, you know, right. it was his idea, he yeah. started it. And for years I'd been saying to him, Douglas, there needs to be more Australian work in this festival. Yeah. And finally he rang me up in 2019 and said, look, you're right, I think it's time. And when the current artistic director feels like it's time to move on, I'd really like you to consider taking the festival on. And that's what transpired. And I signed that contract in March 2020 and a couple of weeks later – the performing arts industry just sort of went to bed for a while. Yes, it did. <laughs> so I didn't get a festival in 2020, but my first one was in 2021 and we're about to have the third one. And what's your vision for Ausasia? Like what have you brought as artistic director that is uniquely you? I really wanted to go back to its original intention, which is looking at the cultural connections between Australia and Asia. So there's sort of three areas of that. One, I really want to bring a snapshot of what's happening or topical in Asia right now because unless you travel there, unless you live there, you don't really get a, a deep sense of what people are thinking or what worries them yeah. or what excites them. So I wanted to bring some work to show that. I wanted to support collaboration between Australian and Asian artists because yep. that's about the person-to-person person -person connection but also exploring how our different worlds and perspectives mesh and what comes of that yeah. when you bring those two people and various cultures together. And the third really important thing is the work and stories of Asian Australians, Australians of Asian background, and they're the ones whose voices I think are missing along with other members of Australia's culturally diverse community. Those stories are so fascinating. Yes. It's just like this rich seam of stories that are just waiting to be told. But also it helps us understand who we are. People talk about multiculturalism and how wonderful it is because we get to eat a lot of different kinds of food. But <laughs> I, I wanted to dig a bit deeper than just, you know, the cuisine. I wanted to dig into people's history and their motivations mm. to find the things that make us different but ultimately what makes us the same, our common sense of humanity. It's clear to see that Annette's philosophy and personal experiences have informed her unique take on the Ausasia Festival and made it so enticing for performers and festival goers alike. Whether you're enjoying a meal at the Lucky Dumpling Market, wandering the Moon Lantern Trail, or sitting down to one of the many performances listed on this year's program, the Oz Asia Festival is one of those special events that nourishes the hearts and minds and stomachs of everyone who experiences it. With so much planned in such a small window, from October 19th to November 5th, I want to hear about some of the exciting things that Annette has programmed in this year's festival. Can you paint a picture for us for the people that are listening about 
what the Moon Lantern Festival feels like and what it looks like because it really is an extraordinary event on the calendar here in Adelaide as part of the festivals that are run by the Festival Centre. It is something where really it's hard to actually fit everyone who wants to come along in. Yeah, I think when it started it was Ausasia Festivals built around the Moon Lantern parade as it yes. was then. So now since 2021, it's a Moon Lantern Trail. It's over on Pinky Flat with the lanterns, not all the ones that people know, but a lot of them yeah. and a lot of new lanterns. And every year we're bringing new ones on because they've got to stay out there and withstand the weather. But you've got four days, you can go, you can spend time, hear the stories about each lantern and take lots of selfies and do yeah. all that. And people are loving that. And the audience, we wondered how people would feel about that. But it's actually so much more family friendly. Yeah. Uh, you can pick your time. Mm. You don't have to stay there for hours waiting for your moment and people seem to have embraced it so it has grown yes it has it, it is certainly one of the most popular events on the calendar here can you also paint a picture for us about the lucky dumpling market yeah the lucky Markets? dumpling market yes, is, is right here it's just loads and loads of fantastic food stalls but since last year, we acquired a much bigger stage. And so this year, in 2023, we thought we really want to make use of that because you've got all these people who are here gathering as families, having a good time, enjoying, you know, the outdoors. And so it's a bit of a captive audience. And we thought, well, let's give them something really worthwhile to come for. So we're going to put some really big names on that stage as well. So free concerts. There's always entertainment on the weekends, but there'll be one big concert, one big headliner each weekend to make it extra special. Oh, that's so exciting. Absolutely can't wait. Are you able to give us a snapshot of what else we can look forward to at the Asia Festival this year in 2023? Well, aside from those big free events, you know, aside from Moon Lantern, we also have on the second weekend, we have Anime Go, which is all things pop culture from Japan. Third weekend, it's the Bubble Tea Garden up on the plaza. Yeah. But there's the ticketed program, which is the one I spend most time on, which mm. I'm very proud of curating. So there's theatre, dance, music, comedy, and a fantastic writing and Ideas Festival, which takes over the last weekend, which is called In Other Words. And all of those fulfill those aims of the festival that we bring some great work from Asia. For a couple of years, it was very hard to bring international guests. Yeah. This year, I think I've sort of made an extra effort. We've had wonderful Asian-Australian dance and theatre over the last few years, and we still do this year, but Perhaps the balance is different because we've been able to bring some of those international artists we've been missing. Yeah. We have two huge dance productions coming. I think our festival has been starved of the big productions. Yeah. And everything in it, every single work in it is extraordinary. It is unlike anything that other festivals generally feature. Yes. And so I think it'll be a very unique experience for audiences to come to experience this smorgasbord of ideas and mm. art. Oh, that is so wonderful. And, well, you've had involvement with the Asia Festival over a number of years, but as artistic director since 2020, what have audience responses been like and how do you tell people, the wider community of Adelaide, Australia, come to this festival because this is what 
you'll get, this is what you'll see. How do you make that relevant to everyone in Australia? Because it is relevant, but sometimes getting people to arts is hard, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, I want everyone to come to this festival because there's nothing like it in the world, right? True, very true. There is nothing like it in the world. And here we are in the Asia-Pacific region and so I want people from the whole region to come as well as from all of Australia to come to experience this because it's a curated program that touches so many art forms but so many ideas and so many cultures in a very contemporary framework. So it's totally about the here and now. Yeah what we're experiencing right now and a lot of what you read in the news and everything is all about what's happening in Asia, right? True. And and yeah. this is a way we stay in touch with and not lose sight of the fact that we are not just countries and mm. warring factions and diplomacy. We are people. Yes. We are people. They are people. We're all people together and it's so important to understand each other and build those relationships. It just makes life richer. And also for those who are both within themselves, embody that connection between Australia and Asia, it's so important they have so much to contribute to our society. And so that's what this festival is about. It's about celebrating that and showing the richness of it. So if you come, you're going to get a taste for that. You're going to see something, hear something, feel something that's new and unexpected and maybe even empowering for you. And that's why I wanted pe- people to come. Which and, are, yeah, you know, which is your, your legacy for your whole career. Yeah. And to- it's easy, you know. It's music. There's yeah. comedy. That's like the most accessible thing. <laughs> and then there's the beauty of dance and theatre. There's so much experience within it. And I think that the people who do come to Asia and know it that's what they most talk about. They come because it's a different experience. Yeah. They come for something that's different to anything they can get elsewhere. Yeah. And with live performances, you only get it that once that you're there. So it's great to not miss out. <laughs> it's very special. And even for people who come here, so many people come to the big live events. Yeah. I'd really love them to also come into the venue yeah. and experience that more intimate the sort of thing of theatre or music or whatever within our venues. I want to encourage people to make that step, to cross cross the threshold yeah. because they'll find something that is familiar but also very surprising. This is a place for all. I love the fact that these are the words that will welcome people to the Oz Asia Festival this year because it is a sentiment that rings so true for the arts industry as a whole and the Adelaide Festival Centre. Oz Asia is an accessible and engaging platform through which people from all walks of life can connect with the culture and stories and experiences of Asian and Asian Australian communities. It takes a lot of effort and consideration to create a space that brings all of these elements together. It's something Annette has achieved so successfully while directing the festival. I mean, I personally cannot wait 
to come along to as many things as possible because it is such an incredible festival. What keeps you motivated to keep on, you know, finding work and producing this kind of creative drive that that keeps this festival relevant and actually keeps you inspired? Well, I just love it. I think it's important for all the reasons we've been talking about. But personally, I just enjoy it, you know. And so being artistic director has allowed me to provide that pathway for all those wonderful artists that I know are there. I see their work and they deserve to be on major festival stages. And most of the time they aren't. You know, Mm. they're there to tick a box for the other festivals, but for us – you know, they're, they're the, the main attraction. Yeah. So it's wonderful for me to see them really have that opportunity to flex their muscles and really show audiences how much brilliant work there is, but also to see our own world from a slightly different lens, but it's still about being Australian. And then making connections with all my colleagues throughout Asia, artistic connections. It's so wonderful to reconnect with them over the last 12 months or so and to see the exciting work. And I just want Australians to to have a chance to see that. And even if you went and travelled, it's hard to find that stuff. So to be able to cherry pick the good stuff and bring it here, I I just love it. And and we cover every genre. I mean, even visual arts, you know, here in the foyer of the Festival Theatre and we also have a partnership with the Art Gallery of South Australia. We also have a partnership with the Adelaide Film Festival, which now is on at the same time. So there's a strand of Asian programming of some fantastic films that are coming from Asia right now. Um, So it's just about every art form is part of it. And we also have this great partnership with the West End with Nexus Arts, where we're putting in this great exhibition of political graffiti work by someone who, he probably hates this, but he's (laughs) described as the Banksy of Malaysia. And I mean, you know, who knew? And the reason we're featuring him is because he's part of a theatre work that is also going to be on at Nexus. So, you know, you just have this opportunity, you find great stuff and you know that there's somewhere here in Adelaide, in the festival centre or in, in our partner venues that they will find a home. It's great to have that flexibility. But I'm also very excited in that we have a big dance work on the stage of the festival theatre in which audiences will actually be on the stage as well. Oh, I love that. And you can be up close and personal. It's a work called infinitely closer and it's all about freedom. And so the audience members will have the freedom to go where they want to go. Wow. Take selfies, take videos, be as close as you and I to the dancers. It's a rare experience. Just take a selfie. (laughs) Yeah. And where do you see the arts, Ausasia Festival, other festivals like this in another 50 years? Oh, Who knows what we'll be doing in 50 years? Who knows how we'll be receiving the arts in 50 years? Yeah. You know, with technology, will we even be gathering or will we be only gathering, you know? Will live performance be so special that it's like the most special thing ever? Or will it be that we'll all just sort of sit at home, you know, Mm. in our media rooms? I really don't know. But I think that what live performance gives is that spontaneous thing it only happens in the moment but also gathering as a group and having that communal experience will become more and more valuable because it will become rare 
And so I think perhaps people will value it even more as time goes. I don't know what form that will take. Yeah. But it's that being somewhere with others, sharing that experience and be able to discuss it afterwards with them and seeing, you know, what did that do for you? Yeah. Yeah. How was it for you? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, the community, the sense of community that you get within the arts when you come to a live show or when you gather in whatever form it is to create that special feeling. I mean, part of the arts is not just here's a performer, here's someone who they're performing to. It's about that transaction that happens between both the performer and the audience and that creates the performance. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, I want to do stuff that leaves a trace, leaves a trace in the lives of the audiences who have come to see it and leaves a trace in the lives of the artists who've been involved with it. So everything has to have meaning for me. Uh, I guess that's the trademark of the stuff I do. And so whatever we do and however we do it, and even though you can now stream everything, to actually be there, breathe the same air with the artist Mm. and knowing that this moment will not, cannot be replicated, that makes it a special human experience. And I'm very pleased to be able to create that for everyone. Yeah, that sounds Absolutely fabulous. And in fact, the whole program for the 2023 Asia Festival sounds amazing. And you yourself has, have touched on so many different elements of the arts industry personally being involved. So it seems only fitting that you're at the helm of this festival, opening up our audience's eyes and experiences to every element of the arts that is on offer. So thank you, Annette. Thanks, Libby. Listening to Annette speak so passionately about the Asia Festival has got me so excited for all the brilliant performances, fabulous music, colourful sights and, yes, the mouth-watering meals on offer this year. We are so lucky here to have at our fingertips a festival that opens us up to such diverse and fascinating corners of the globe. It feels like such a privilege to be able to experience all of these new ideas in our own backyard. And it's all thanks to the vision and passion of its artistic director, Annette Shunwar, who has dedicated herself to amplifying stories that better reflect the reality of Australian society. The Oz Asia Festival is a bright, fun and rich addition to the lineup of festivals on offer at the Adelaide Festival Centre. If you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend you take a look through this year's program and head along to something that piques your interest. There's so much on offer and you simply won't want to miss out. The festival will run from the 19th of October until the 5th of November. We'll pop a link to the program in the show notes. If you enjoyed this audio experience, rate the podcast and share it with your friends and family so we can all enjoy the rich cultural experiences South Australia has to offer. In the meantime, if you need an entertainment fix, why not see a show? You can find out what fantastic performances are currently showing on the Adelaide Festival Centre website and social media. Search Adelaide Festival Centre or follow the links in the episode description. I'm Libby O'Donovan, and you're listening to The First 50 Podcast, produced by Solstice Podcasting and the Adelaide Festival Centre.